Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Daniel chapter 3, or turn there in your bulletin. We'll be back in the book of Daniel for the next three weeks as Brian takes a break from his sermon series in Acts. So I want to encourage you guys to be reading ahead, uh, be preparing your hearts for the preaching of God's Word from Daniel over these next couple weeks. We'll be in Daniel chapter 4 next week and Daniel chapter 5 the week after. But today we're in Daniel 3. So before we begin, let me pray and ask for the Lord's help as we study His Word together. Heavenly Father, we pray that You would bless the preaching of Your Word today. I pray that You would speak to those that have gathered here through me. Give us ears to hear what You would have us to hear from Your Word. Guard me from error as I teach this passage, and soften our hearts to believe in Your power to save, to be comforted with Your promised presence, and lead us to worship You and You alone, because You alone are worthy of our lives and our worship. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So, let me take us back up to speed. We've been out of Daniel for a little bit, and let me give you a bit of background to Daniel chapter 3. If you remember from several weeks ago when I preached Daniel 1 and 2, God's people, including Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these young youths from, uh, uh, from, from Jerusalem, were taken captive along with the people of Judah. God's people were dragged across the world to Babylon, and they were set up as exiles in that land under King Nebuchadnezzar. These young men were at first encouraged to break faith with their God, Yahweh, by the delights of Babylon. They were enticed with food and wine and great things. The city of Babylon was the largest city in the world at this time, and it boasted great splendor. These young men had been handpicked. Not all of the Jews went right into the city of Babylon, but Daniel and his friends were picked from among the royal family, from among those that were most esteemed in Jerusalem, to be part of King Nebuchadnezzar's re-education program. Then in chapter 2 of Daniel, we saw that King Nebuchadnezzar was left stunned as God had gifted Daniel with the ability to know and interpret a troubling dream that he had had about the future and the future of his kingdom. In his dream, he saw a great image, and it was made of various kinds of materials, including a head of gold, which represented King Nebuchadnezzar himself and his kingdom. But at the end of his dream, he saw a stone that was made without human hands that came down from heaven and struck the image. This stone represented a heavenly kingdom that was to come, and it turned the statue into dust, and then the stone grew into a mountain that filled the whole earth. Now, we're not told how long, how much time elapsed between Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 3, which we'll be looking at today, but it seems like it must have been some time. 
like the time it's been since we last heard Daniel chapter 2. Some time has passed. The reason we know that is it's, it seems like something's changed because virtually the last words that we hear in Daniel chapter 2 are that King Nebuchadnezzar fell down before Daniel and worshipped and praised the God of Daniel. If you look back, if you have your Bibles open, you look back at Daniel chapter 2, it says that King Nebuchadnezzar said, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries. Because God had revealed this mystery about His dream to him, because He had gifted Daniel with the ability to interpret the dream for him, he praised God. But then here we find ourselves in Daniel chapter 3, and we find him setting up an image of his own and demanding that everyone under his rule bow down and worship this idol. Now, from Daniel chapter 2, I mean, Daniel chapter 3, there are two things that I want you to see crystal clear from this chapter. These two things I want you to see are because they are central to the message of Daniel chapter 3, and they were clear in the minds of the story of our three heroes, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These were truths that were crystal clear to them and were what inspired them to be heroic in their faithfulness towards God. And the reason that we have this story entrusted to us in Scripture is because it's to inspire you and I to live faithfully in a world that is against God. So, these two truths that led to their heroic faithfulness are two truths that I want you to walk away with. Two things which are, in fact, the reason that they were so heroic. Two things, in fact, which if we want to be like them, we must believe with all of our hearts too. And two things which are ultimately not really about them at all, but are about their God. Two things that make the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, the God of the Jews, Yahweh, that make Him stand out from all the kings of the world and all the gods that the so-called gods that the earth creates. The first truth I want you to see is really kind of functions as the, as the canvas, uh, the backdrop, which makes the, the second truth stand out. I'm going to share the second truth with you later in the sermon, but the first truth is this. There is no one like Yahweh who is worthy of our worship. There is nobody like Yahweh who is worthy of our worship. King Nebuchadnezzar made this image, this idol, we could say, of gold, he set it up on the plain of Dura, and he demanded that all the peoples of his vast empire come together to worship the image that he had set up. We're not told exactly why he did this, but many have guessed that this was part of his plan to, to unite his, his, his kingdom that was made up of many peoples, peoples that worshipped all kinds of gods, peoples that um, were divided by language even, by nationality, all these things. And so, the author stresses this for us. He makes clear that this, 
this was a, a gathering of all kinds of people from all kinds of places. We had those lists of all these different kinds of people, important uh, people that were chiefs among their, their nations. It's also not clear from this passage exactly what the image was of. All we're told is that it was made of gold, so it was obviously very valuable. And we're told that it was enormous. Now, I'm sure many of you don't work in cubits, but 60 cubits high is approximately 90 feet tall. So it's about 15 times my height or nine stories tall. And this, this image was also nine feet wide. Can you imagine how incredible it would be to see how impressive it would be to look at this idol, this image of gold, 90 feet tall. You know, even in Dubai, by the standards here where there's a lot of things that are plated in gold and a lot of things that look very valuable, even here, that would be a pretty amazing sight to behold, 90 foot tall golden statue. You know, it's possible that this, there's lots of theories about what this statue looked like. Perhaps it was one of the gods of Babylon maybe the chief among their gods, Bel, or perhaps it was of Nebuchadnezzar himself, the king who represented his, his kingdom but also represented his gods on earth. Maybe that's even why the whole thing was made of gold. Maybe it was a response to the image that Nebuchadnezzar had seen in his dream in Daniel chapter 2, but instead of it being only partly made of gold, he made the whole thing. He wanted his kingdom to last forever. What we are told is that King Nebuchadnezzar made a royal edict, a decree to all the peoples that were part of his empire, all the nations that he had conquered, that they were to come to a dedication of this idol. And when a whole host of musicians played a whole host of instruments, they were to fall down. They were to bow down before this image and worship the statue, this golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And he warns them, if anyone refuses, they will immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace, a huge oven to burn alive. And so these people did. From all these different tribes and languages, they came together, they fell down, and they bowed before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Everyone except our three heroes, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so quickly, some of the Chaldeans likely from among the, the wise men, the enchanters and sorcerers of chapter 2 who had failed the king, to, they couldn't interpret his dream, probably saw that there was an opportunity to get their own back on these exiles who had been promoted above them and now ruled over the provinces. Look back at what these Chaldeans said in verse 12. They go to the king and they say, these men, O king, they pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. 
one important thing to note, even at this early point in the story, is that there are times when as believers, as Christians, as those who are faithful to God, that by living faithful lives, leading holy lives, we will have favor before men. That will happen at at some points. There will be times when people see the good works that we do in the name of the Lord Jesus, and they'll glorify God because of them. But as we see here and as we see throughout the Scriptures, there are also many times We've seen this in the book of Acts that Brian's been preaching through. There are often times when being faithful to God gets your attention, but not positively, it actually turns people against you. There'll be times when doing what is right and good will lead to people hating you, being offended by you, opposing you, especially when you refuse to join them in serving and worshiping the gods that they have, the idols that they have set up for themselves. So King Nebuchadnezzar, he flies into a furious rage, and he demands that the men be brought before him to answer for their disobedience. Is it true, he says, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image that I have set up? And then he gives them an ultimatum in, with the audience of all these people there. He says, fall down and worship when the music plays or die in my fiery furnace. And he asks them a rhetorical question. Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Nebuchadnezzar's question isn't a genuine question. He had encountered the God of the Jews just one chapter before. The implication here is that there's no God that can deliver them from His hand. He's all-powerful. And obviously, they are in exile. The Jews are in exile because Nebuchadnezzar and his gods are mightier than them. They're more powerful than the gods of the peoples who belong to them. Their God couldn't save them from him in the past, and their God certainly can't save them now. Or so King Nebuchadnezzar thinks. But then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they respond in verses 16 through 18. I want to draw your attention there now. Look at verses 16 through 18 with me. These are very important verses in this chapter because these are actually the only recorded words of these three men in the whole Bible. We've seen them introduced in chapter 1 and 2 so far, but this is the only time we've heard their words recorded. And they answered the king and said to him, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Their response is absolutely staggering. These men, young men, are standing before the most powerful man in the whole world at this time. And their lives are on the line. 
And when he asks them why they won't obey his demands, they respond that they aren't obligated to explain themselves. I want you to know that this is not the arrogance of youth, though they were likely young men. We, we, they were called youths in previous chapters. This isn't the arrogance of youth. This is rather the understanding that they were under a higher authority than this king. There was someone greater than him that they answered to. And while they don't feel the need to explain themselves to him, rather than begging for his mercy, they state that whether they live or whether they die, they will not serve his gods. They will not worship the image that this king has set up. Why would they be willing to die rather than to simply fall down before some statue? Why not just pretend? Why not do it begrudgingly? What would stir such courage in the face of the fury of the king and his fiery furnace? The truth is that they knew their God. They knew Yahweh. And they knew that only He is worthy of worship. The fear of the Lord drives out all other fears. Their uh, ultimate allegiance to God meant that they were not ultimately accountable to this king. Their reverence for Yahweh eclipsed their fear of Nebuchadnezzar. The Lord redeemed His people from being enslaved in Egypt to be His treasured possession, and He made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. He gave them His law. He made clear instructions to them, and the law begins with the Ten Commandments. These young men would have known the Ten Commandments by heart, and they begin with the command, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that's under heaven above or that's on the earth beneath, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. These men knew this God, this jealous God. They knew that to bow down, to do what Nebuchadnezzar was asking, would be to break the first two commandments to defy Yahweh, and to face His judgment. These men feared God more than they feared man. Their, their response shows a settled commitment, despite the reality of the danger that they faced, to not compromise. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, says that those who know God show great boldness for God. Those who know God show great boldness for God. And once they know that their stand is right and what loyalty to their God requires, they joyfully face the consequences. We've seen this in the book of Acts in the series that Brian's preaching as well. 
when the apostles went before the rulers in their day and said, we must obey God rather than man. What made these men bold in the face of adversity? It was knowing God. The more you know your God, the more bold you will become and the less you will fear man. Brothers and sisters, the fear of man lays a snare, the author of Proverbs tells us. It will lead you to turn from worshiping God, and you will end up falling down before people. Maybe not literally, but you will be worshiping at the feet of people if you fear them. They will control you. We are unlikely to face the threat of death if we don't worship a 90-foot gold statue, but we are constantly tempted to fear others in such a way that we're controlled by them rather than being controlled by honoring God. It's like, in a sense, in our mind, these people grow in our estimations into monstrous, idolatrous proportions. It's like they grow into 90-foot grotesque images. You know, there's an, there's an excellent resource that I would highly recommend to you if you're someone who faces this temptation often. If you're tempted to fear what other people think of you, if you're tempted to fear disappointing other people, there's a book that's written by a man called Ed Welch that's called When People Are Big and God is Small. If you're tempted to fear people, I encourage you to spend the money on getting that. Or if you don't have the money, come and talk to me and I'll buy you a copy of that book. In it, the author Ed Welch explains the fear of man. He says sometimes we call it people-pleasing, other times we call it peer pressure. If you're in high school or college, you may have felt that or heard of that. Other times we call it codependency, and it can be manifested in all kinds of ways, even in Christians' lives, even in our church. It might look like holding someone in such high regard or esteem that we always desperately need them or their approval in our lives. It might look like being unwilling to ever challenge someone or correct them because we're scared that that might upset them, rather than thinking that God calls us to be instruments of change in one another's lives. Sometimes the fear of man looks like overcommitment because you're just so scared of saying no to someone. Fear of man can show itself in countless ways, many more than the ones I've just described. But what we see in these three young men is that the fear of the Lord eclipsed their fear of man. It eclipses all other fears. It drives them out. We overcome fear of man by growing in fearing the Lord and we grow in fearing the Lord as we grow to know Him as He has revealed Himself to be, as we know Him more and more, as we study His Word, as we listen to it being preached, as we reflect on the truths that are within it. We will grow in fearing God, and it will wipe away the fear of others. These men knew their God, that He alone deserves worship, that He is jealous for His worship, that He doesn't share His glory with another, and that He demands complete and utter allegiance. 
and that he alone is worthy of it. Worshipping anything other than God and anything other than worshipping God exactly as he has instructed us to worship him is idolatry. To bow to this image would mean to forsake the Lord. Even in the book of Exodus, when the people of Israel made a golden calf and they said that it represented Yahweh who had saved them out of Egypt, and they bowed down and worshipped it, God put thousands of them to death because it was breaking His law. It was idolatry. And God hates idolatry in every way, shape, and form. Now, some of you who are here and people throughout our city are from places where people bow in worship to idols, literally, images. And even within the history of Christianity, this kind of idolatry has crept in, this kind of sin. In some parts of the church, historically, icons have been used, icons of Mary or saints are prayed to and used to worship. Statues of Jesus, perhaps, are bowed to or prayed to. This is wrong. And that's why this building is remarkably bare of any images, and we don't incorporate any in our worship. But idolatry doesn't always look like bowing down before statues or icons. We can and are prone to worship all kinds of things other than God alone. In the Bible, they are called idols of the heart. We, we set them up just like Nebuchadnezzar did. We build them, manufacture them, even if it's just in our hearts. And you know, Dubai is filled with things, even idols of the heart that are worshipped by many. That's why many people come here. They come in search of these things that they long to have and to worship. Money, status, reputation or comfort, security, pleasure. John Calvin, the great reformer, says that man's heart is a perpetual factory of idols. And the apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that mankind since the fall of man, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the garden, have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They have worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. This is part of what's fundamentally wrong with all human beings. How do we know as Christians if our desires, even for things that are seemingly good, gifts from God, have become idols in our heart? Well, I'm sorry to tell you that there is no quick fix or simple answer to that question. In fact, this will be a lifelong process of Christians killing our idols and learning to grow in the fear of the Lord. It will not happen overnight. It is not even so much of a question of if we have idols, it's what we're doing about our idols. Now, of course, as Christians, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're not an you're not ultimately an idolater, you're forgiven, but we still are tempted to make idols of things. We're tempted to make compromises in our devotion to the Lord and to live for something other than the glory of God alone. That's exactly what happens every single time you or I sin. 
we exchange obedience to God for satisfying our own desires. And when we pull up sin from our lives, we will find idols at the root. And that's one way that we can identify the things that are being, we're being tempted to bow down to instead of God, is to think about our sin. I want to give you two questions to consider. I want you to write these down, type them on your phone. Take time to reflect on these two questions and discuss them with someone, a brother or a sister, a member in the church during the week. Question number one will help you identify idols is, what do you desire so much that you are willing to sin to get it? What do you desire so much that you are willing to sin to get it? Question number two also begins with, what do you desire so much? What do you desire so much that you will sin if you don't get it? You'll lash out. Maybe you'll be angry or bitter, envious. As you reflect on those questions, what do you desire so much that you're willing to sin to get it? Or what do you desire so much that you will sin if you don't get it? Will help you to identify places in your life, things that are in your heart that are vying for God's worship. Take time, reflect on these questions, talk to a brother or sister about them, and then confess these idols. Confess them out loud to each other and to the Lord. Repent of them, flee from them, and remain faithful to God. Because they refused to worship Nebuchadnezzar's golden image, he mockingly asked them, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? And their answer to that question reveals the second crucial truth which made these men bold in the face of danger and death. The second crucial truth of Daniel chapter 3 is that there's no one like Yahweh who is able to save. There is no one like Yahweh who's able to save. And this is really verses 16 to the end. These men say, Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and He will deliver us out of your hand, O King. But if not, be it known to you, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew that Yahweh was capable of saving, that He had the power to save, that He was sovereign, that He was in control of all things. The book of Exodus speaks of God's mighty power demonstrated in the salvation of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. God showed great mighty signs and wonders. His power was on display, and Moses Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4, he described this salvation as being brought out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt. God had saved His people from the furnace before, and these men knew that He is able to save them now. 
and they don't doubt God's ability to deliver them, but they also knew that rescue was not guaranteed. They had not been promised to be delivered. They don't presume to know what God's will is in this trial for them. God could save, as He had done in the past, but He had also given His people into exile because of their faithlessness as a nation. And they didn't know what God would do, but they knew what they would not do. They would not worship this image no matter what, even if it meant death. They would remain faithful. And at that, Nebuchadnezzar flies into a furious rage. The text describes that you could see the rage on his face. And he tells his men to superheat the furnace, turn the oven up seven times hotter than usual, and bind these men fully clothed, throw them in. The furnace was so hot that these soldiers, this is a bit of irony here, the soldiers who were absolutely obeying Nebuchadnezzar's commands end up dead, and the ones that are being thrown in end up alive. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are tossed into the fiery furnace. And the way the story is told from this point on, we're left wondering what exactly happened? What, are they going to be okay? The story is like a slow-mo scene from a Hollywood movie from the perspective of Nebuchadnezzar in Verse 24, look there and following, we're told that King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. He rose up in haste and he declared, did, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said to them, but I see four men and they're unbound and they're walking in the midst of the fire and they aren't hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So Nebuchadnezzar comes closer to get a better look, but not too close because it's pretty hot, remember? It killed some guys. And he calls men, calls to them, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God. Interesting that he now turns to calling this God that he had rejected the Most High God. He says, come out and come here. This man is still making commands. And not only are they still alive, but we're told that they're completely untouched by the effects of the fire. It says it had no power over them. Not even a single hair was singed. Their clothes were completely unaffected. Not even the smell of smoke was on these men. King Nebuchadnezzar can't help but respond to what he's seen by praising the God of the Jews Nebuchadnezzar determines that the figure he saw in the flames with the men was the Lord's angel, he says, sent to deliver his servants. Finally, just as at the beginning of this chapter, King Nebuchadnezzar makes another decree to all his people, any people, nation, or language, that if they speak anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, again, he threatens more violence. They'll be torn limb from limb, and their houses will be laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. God uses the mouths of a pagan king to proclaim his power. In the course of a chapter, though, we've seen this pagan king turn from demanding idol worship to declaring that the Lord alone can save. And he's right. Just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had known that God was able and mighty to save. 
And that's the point. That's the point of this chapter, is that there's no other God like Yahweh who is able to save. Now, I want to I draw a few applications from this passage before I conclude. We must recognize, number one, that God is powerful to deliver us from any and every fiery trial that we might face in our lives. God is powerful and able to save us from any fiery trial that we might face in our lives, but we should not presume that He will, just like these men. Remember, they said God can do it, but even if He doesn't, we're not going to bow down and worship this idol. Even as we've seen in Acts, there are times when God saves and rescues, and there are times when He doesn't. Knowing God can deliver us should give us strength and courage in the midst of the trials, whatever they are, whatever we face, and whether we live or die. Number two, God sometimes saves us not from the trial, but through it, just like He did with these men. God is powerful. He is all-powerful. He could do anything. He could have made the furnace not work. He could have made it so that no one noticed them when they didn't bow down to the idol. God could have done a million other things that would have kept them from this situation. But God did not do that because it was an opportunity for His power and His glory to be seen. Number three, God draws near to us when we suffer. There's some debate about who this mysterious fourth person in the flames was, this one who was like a son of the gods. Was it God? Was it a pre-incarnate Christ? Or was King Nebuchadnezzar right? Is it an angel sent from God? Well, we don't know. But whoever it was, it was a demonstration of God's care and His presence with these brothers in their distress. Jesus' last recorded words to, to His disciples in Matthew are an encouragement about the same thing. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. God promises His presence with us by His Spirit no matter what we face. Whether we can see it or not, God is with us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. That's what that means. And He dwells with His people by His Spirit. God will never leave His people. He will never forsake them, especially when they're in their greatest trials. Now, as as astonishing as this story in Daniel chapter 3 of God's rescue is, it is overshadowed. It is eclipsed by the story of the whole Bible, the good news, the gospel of God's deliverance of His people from His own fiery judgment. Our God, the Bible says, is a consuming fire. God is holy and just and righteous altogether. His fury rages against sin and rebellion against all idolatry. 
and every single one of us, you and I, all of mankind, have sinned against this holy God. We're all in desperate need of saving, not from the judgment of a king, but from the judgment of the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And you and I would stand guilty before him. We would be worthy of facing his fiery judgment and the eternal fires of hell. But God is gracious. He's merciful. And in love, he sent his son to rescue and to deliver us, to bear the wrath that we deserve for our sin and to face death for us because we deserve death. And he did so when he went to the cross. Jesus, the Son of God, He satisfied the flames of hell on behalf of His people, and He was delivered from death by rising triumphantly from it. And Jesus welcomes any and every sinner who trusts in Him to be saved, even idolaters, those who fear man, those who are people-pleasers. Any sinner can find grace any sinner can be saved in the loving arms of the Lord Jesus. If you do not know him, if you have not turned to him, I plead with you, turn to Christ today in faith. Believe that he can save even you. Trust in his power to save. But we must take this call seriously. We must take this call to respond to the salvation that God offers seriously. And I say that because here we see, as we've seen in chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar, he encountered God. We could say that he had a religious moment, an experience. He was even moved, and he praised God. He was astonished by the power that God had to reveal the mysteries of the future and to deliver his people from a fiery furnace. But King Nebuchadnezzar did not pledge exclusive allegiance and worship to God. We could say that King Nebuchadnezzar was stirred, but he was not converted he recognized that only their God could rescue in this way. He commanded no one to speak against this God. But King Nebuchadnezzar did not go far enough. He didn't see the two truths that this passage teaches. He didn't see what these three men saw. That not only is there no one like God who can save, but that God alone is worthy of worship. Let's go to this God together in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we give you praise. We acknowledge that you alone are worthy of our worship. And we ask that you would help us Help us to live in such a way that gives you and you alone glory. Keep us from having idols in our hearts which compete with you for control over our lives. 
And we recognize and we praise you that you alone are powerful to save. In your infinite wisdom, you sometimes spare us from trials. Other times you bring us through them unscathed. But whatever happens, Lord, we know that you have delivered us from the fires of your wrath through your Son, Jesus, in whom we trust and in whom, whose name we pray. Amen.